Welcome back for part two of our special one year anniversary episode. I'm sorry, I don't think you know what show where they're listening to. Let's let's try it again. Hi, I'm you, your line. Do your line. What line? Your you. Hello and welcome to Just a Story. I'm Sam. I'm so confused. Just go with it. I'm Jake. And we're here to tell you a story. I don't know your part. <laughs> Do you even listen when I talk? What? Yeah, exactly. Each week we take a look at the stories we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. And this week we are finishing up our one year party on excellent birthday party extravaganza right and we've been looking at tattoos and different things that we do to our body and how that can be considered forms of folklore so you're just joining us for the first time we want to send you back in time to a few days ago to retrieve part one of episode 52 and just a reminder before we get back into the show we do have our one year anniversary pause go read it prize So if you talk to us or leave us reviews or reach out in any way, your name goes in the magical mystery hat and we will draw someone's name from the magical mystery hat and we will send them a pause, go read it prize, which is a book from our pause, go read it store. So you have one month, four weeks to do that. So now let's get back to the stories at hand. Good deal. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And and everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This they start telling you stories of the old. Family. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American The story behind the story. Because it's just a story. So discussing all of these really interesting, odd kind of historical and some modern ideas of beauty and ways we alter the body. And it brings us back to the extremely popular modern tattoo fad. Right. I definitely see more people with tattoos than without. And that's in my soccer mom circle. So funny thing. Yeah. And in my uh, parent circle that I see every day, I see lots and lots of tattoos, not just little hidden ones. No, no, they've moved out and down and across and on top of and behind. (laughs) They're everywhere. And there has been a lot of very, very interesting writing and research on the modern tattoo fad. Are people arguing? Never. Is there much debate? Of course there's lots of debate, of course. So you're saying folklorists have gotten involved? Well, anthropologists. Oh, well, same same story, different day. And some people like to look at it as kind of a turn on the idea of American culture and consumerism. Like branding? Like, yeah. Not like cows, but like... Doritos? Well, yeah. I mean, some of it, tattooing is used in branding. It's now used in commercials and advertisements to signify, you know, being young and free and rebellious. Oh, no. I meant, like, your branding. Like, you're wearing a company's brand. Like, by all rights, my tattoo is copyrighted. Like, I have a trademarked image on my body. Do you have a little TM on there? I should. But I don't. But I was thinking about it the other day, and a lot of things you do see people getting are logos or not really of, like, Doritos. I'm sure there is one guy. You're an idiot guy. But, you know, like, people have characters from pop culture or bands or portraits of famous people or, you know, you're branding your body with this copyrighted material or pictures of people you've never met or whatever it is. But sort of 
that is commodification, right? Right, it is. And, you know, it's thought that in this kind of consumeristic society, we are commodifying our bodies. And so in so many ways you hear, oh, you have to be this big or this small or you have to wear these types of clothes. Yeah, like when you try out for America's Next Top Model. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Like you did that one time. Uh, We won't talk about that. We'll save that for a special. But we have this constant need to change and adapt. It's a very American Western idea. Not that other cultures don't have that, but it's almost like our mantra. Right. Well, uh, we really do have a mantra of individualism. That has been something that's been ingrained in our cultural fabric since we had one. Right. We have individualism, but it's like, hey, be an individual and wear these. Jinkos. Yes. Why again? I don't know. It's the hot topic of the day. Get it. And choosing what you choose to consume or to wear on your body to present as yourself. You're drawing those boundaries of inclusion and exclusion of what group you're going to be in. Right, like if somebody has a really big problem with Batman, we're never going to be friends because I have that tattooed on my body. True. So when they see your ass, it's out the door. I mean, they're like, I'm sorry. I know I just got you undressed, but I'm going to have to leave because I am a Superman fan. And they turn, and not that this has ever happened to me. I'm not bitter. I'm not talking about any specific incident that's Uh ever occurred to me, Mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. (sighs) But it could happen, hypothetically. Just saying. But we talk about that inscribing into certain groups, and you are by literally inscribing onto your body something, you're also inscribing the boundaries that you want to be put in. As society focuses more on this kind of material body, it becomes more and more important. Our society doesn't focus on a material body that's preposterous. Yes, never. Never. Something like a tattoo is a permanent, indelible identity marker inscribing that boundary that you're going to be in. Right. So if you get a face tattoo, you're not going to be the CEO of a bank. Not today, at least. You never know. You never know. If you look at the body of an American as a commodity and tattooing and other forms of permanent body modification can be seen as a way that the individual reclaims some power over his or her body over this kind of consumeristic ideals that Americans love and love to hate. So by rebelling against this idea of being like everyone else, you are saying, I'm like everyone else on this side of the line? It's a taking back from society and placing yourself where you want yourself to be. Well, I think it's really interesting that you bring that up because one of the really fertile grounds for tattooing for a long time has been in prisons. Like Santa Muerta? Santa Muerta, yes, absolutely. That was a a right old hit in Mexican prisons for a long time. Well, that is definitely a subversive act as well, because that's technically not allowed. Technically, prisoners should not be getting tattoos. There's not some guy there with an electric machine. These are ink pen breaking, needle tapping kind of tattoos. Very home done. And they definitely have their own iconography. And they have a very rigid place in the prison hierarchy. A lot of people will have symbols associated with prison gangs put on their skin in order to mark their allegiance and you know, be afforded some kind of protection or really mark a commitment that they're willing to step over this line. And so it's like a little microcosm of what you're seeing in a larger society. And in the same way that it's an act of rebellion in a prison... You can say that 
in a society where we're under constant pressure to conform or to fit neatly in our little boxes or under constant scrutiny, that we feel that we are committing a subversive act, stepping over a line and into a group and asking them for acceptance. But as the them grows larger and larger, it becomes less and less subversive. Another way that one can understand prison tattooing is sort of a reclamation of the body from the state. Your bodily rights have essentially been taken away from you. You don't have the right to move around freely. You don't have the right to see the people you want to see and be part of society in the way that you would choose to. You've forfeited it or it's been taken from you. Either way, you're being told that you don't get to make decisions for yourself, but you can make this decision for yourself. And it's a visible reclamation of self from the state, from you know whatever agency has incarcerated you. It is a reclamation of self from society as a whole that sought to punish you. So it's a definite, I am my own, you can't tell me what to do. And it does set up a system of boundaries that are obvious and readily apparent to an onlooker. I mean, some of these are done very visibly. The thing is that those follow you when you step outside of the walls and then they're still very visible and very apparent. Right. They still continue to mark you in that group, which may not be that great whenever you're trying to kind of reclaim your life outside of prison life. But there really has been just such a resurgence in tattooing over the last 20, 30 years. And some of that has to do with it just being very mainstreamed. There's a huge amount of cultural acceptance. Yes, not among my mom and sister, but other people seem to be on board. Your mom has tattoos. My mom does have tattoos, and that's the funniest thing in the world. My mom has uh, eyebrows and eyeliner. She had her face tattooed. My mother has face tattoos. Now She's just hardcore. She's hardcore. Yeah, I'm waiting for that neck tattoo of all the grandchildren's names. She would do it. Like she has on like every t-shirt she wears. She does. But it, it really has become mainstream. You see it in TV shows. You see celebrities with it. You see reality shows. Like Ink Master, specifically with the tattooing competitions, um, is one that I think of. Or Miami Ink. Oh, yeah. And then Kat Von D had a spinoff and a makeup line, which is fabulous. But yeah, and you can see the kind of iconography or generalized imagery from several different schools of tattooing being used in a lot of just graphic design now, too. There's just a kind of a basic appropriation of all of that art throughout culture. When you see the opposite, too, you see a lot of people that are artists with art school training going into tattooing because people want more of an art form to it. And some of that does come from seeing these master tattooists on TV and wanting something like they could make, but also just wanting something beautiful and individual to be part of you. Well, I don't think that they necessarily want it to be more of an art form because I think that every traditional school of tattooing has its own artistry. I think they might want something that is more high art. No, very true. Very true. But with the pulling of the idea of tattooing from those subcultural roots of blue-collar, underground, deviant, into more of the mainstream, you know, there's a concern, in a way, by people that it's going gonna, it's gonna to lose its cool. It's going to lose its rebellion. You know, they talk about the 1970s punk subculture and how that was just completely pillaged by the culture industry. It's repackaged and gentrified and someone having spiky hair and a torn up jeans became the norm. You were now fashionable 
to wear that. You are not subversive. Right. And I do think that there is some of that. But the thing is, tattooing can be done in degrees. And I think that if you're going to have your whole body tattooed, that's still kind of subversive and it will be until everyone does it. No, true. There, You can have that more extreme to where it's extremely visible. You cannot hide it. Right. But with that, so we have this mainstreaming of tattooing. It's like, why is this happening? Why has this become such a huge fad? And there's this amazing article in the Atlantic called The Identity Crisis Under the Ink. And it talks about just how our modern, kind of what was called millennials, which we technically fall in, and talking about how millennials really are just trying to identify themselves. Who are you? And that idea can be so important. And we see that all the time on social media. And that question, who am I, can be a liberating one. If one were to be liberated by the question, who am I, it might be like, I'm not like the people who have been trying to put me in the boxes think I am. I am more than that. I think. I read. I write. I like these things. And it can kind of set you free from your prescribed identity. Right, it can be kind of liberating. But for some people, it can be a paralyzing experience. I don't know who I am. Why am I supposed to know this already? I can't be that. Somebody I know is already that. I can't be the funny one. I already have a friend who's the funny one. I can't be the pretty one. I already have a friend who's the pretty one. What am I going to be? What's left for me? Right. So our modern social roles and that just modern social idea of having to know who you are, especially in the context of social media, compels us to declare our identity. We have to say, this is who I am. We have to have conviction, whether you know it or not. And something that helps us express that identity is tattooing. Right, because it's a a permanent mark. And it's like, I went through the experience. I went and saw this artist and this artwork out, and I had it put in my body. I'm committed to it. Look, I have proof. I'm not a poser, which is such a great counterculture term. It is. And so he spoke with a researcher, Anne Veliquette, um, from the University of Arkansas, and she looks at the relationship between consumer behavior and popular culture. And she argues that we're more able now than ever before to kind of recreate our identity very easily, both online mm-hmm. and in real life. I think that's true. Well, she did a study where she interviewed young people looking at those ideas of identity. And she did the first study in 1998, so before social media. You'd say before the modern tattoo craze really kicked off. No, I would agree with that. She found that people knew who they were, and they had a sense of their core self. And if they had tattoos, they used it as a way just to cement those aspects of their current selves. But when she redid the study in 2006, she found similar ideas with tattooing, you know, trying to cement these ideas of yourself, but they used it as more proof that their identity even existed at all. I find that interesting because if you think about the kind of tattoos that people were getting in the late 90s, they were more like icons or classics or military or names or things like that. But then there was this moment in like the early 2000s when people were getting lots of tribal, not their tribal, lots of butterflies. You know, butterflies were a common tattoo back in that first fad. Right. And the turn of the... 20th century. Well, I recently looked through a lot of vintage photos of ladies from that era with their tattoos, and there were lots and lots and lots of butterflies. Also, lots of George Washingtons, which is weird. Never floats your boat. 
I want a George Washington tattoo. Just kidding. I'd get Lincoln. But using this current idea of tattoos as like proof of identity, one of the essay's co-authors said, We continue to be struck by rapid and unpredictable change. The result is a loss of personal anchors needed for identity. And we can use those tattoos as anchors. Their popularity reflects a need for stability, predictability, and permanence. So, I mean, how much writing has been done about these newfangled millennials and how they can't get stable and have a job and a house and 2.5 kids? Yeah, everyone's just moving back into their parents' basement, those dirty, dirty animals. But, yeah, where I was going with that, like, the tribal fad and that kind of stuff is you see people reaching out to have tattoos done when they can't possibly have a personal connection with what they're having put on their body. It's like just the act. It's this sort of style over substance, just having it there versus having something personal to you. And now you see the extreme opposite where it's like, oh, I don't want anything if anyone else has ever had it ever. No, you're right. Because that other one identified you in that group. Mm-hmm. You were in that group of guys with tribal tattoos. And girls with tribal tattoos on their lower uh, back. That girl. But now it's like, oh, no, I can't just choose Flash. Don't be silly. Like, I would be so interested to go and poll tattooing places and see what the numbers of people getting stuff off the wall is within the last five years. I bet it's dropped dramatically. They talked about some of the things people are using and they really do just represent those anchor points. You know, people that want a, a feeling of limitlessness turn towards images like feathers, arrows, birds, infinity symbols. People use dream catchers, anchors, a relative's handwriting, a religious imagery to just represent that stability that they want. And frequently, anchors are put on the feet. <laughs> but you see that, that loss of those connections, those anchors in society, and you can understand why. You know, People used to connect with their job. Mm-hmm. People used to identify with their house, you know, personal possessions, or with their religion, or with their military. social the military, or with their social group. Mm -hmm. Um, which still happens now, but now these social groups are much more little microcosms. And much more amorphous, and they can be, your social network can literally be all over the country instead of your neighborhood. Another popular tattoo motif that you see a lot now are arrows. And I mean, just Mm -hmm. looking at that in the most literal way, it's like people want a direction. I always... I have no problem talking to people. It's probably a problem. (laughs) No, we are the most approachable people on the planet if we're out together we will get asked for directions people will tell us life stories we should have been bartenders or psychiatrists or doctors or doctors oh, nobody cares nobody cares every time i ask somebody what their air tattoo means it usually means like moving forward moving on from something mm-hmm. like one person i met randomly you know told me that she got her first tattoo it's an air tattoo and she got it after she got divorced Mm-hmm. It's like the new haircut. You get a tattoo after a breakup, not a haircut. But there's an interesting thing about this fad. And then it's not like wearing jeans. It's not like wearing jingos or getting your hair crimped. I never did that. Whatever. I really didn't. My mom wouldn't let me. I never had jellies either because of her. But it's something that is permanent. So it's, it's what's called an ironic fad. Well, we are the ironic generation, are we not? Right? It's perfect. And so an ironic fad is defined as a popular cultural trend due to its permanent nature and cannot be easily discarded. So you have this on you no matter what. It's going to be part of your story. 
kind of like you said, you're like, I don't care what this looks like when I'm 90. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be funny. It'll be interesting. And that idea is very pervasive. Even if the meaning of the tattoo shifts and its cultural currency changes, it still means something to the wearer. And it still identifies that person in a certain way. Even if it's something like, oh, I, this reminds me of that time. Reminds me of when I was young and had that tattoo. Right. My mom, one of her big arguments, my mother hates tattoos. Uh, she hates them, hates them, hates them, hates them, except hers. Those are fine. But she'll always say like, oh, what is that going to look like when she's 80? Right. But I think that in what she's actually saying is that tattoos prohibit dignity. They prevent aging into that wise old sage. They prevent being an elder that is respected and looked at as someone who is cautious and makes good decisions. And I think that that's really interesting because I believe that that can shift. I believe that these can be markers of a life lived to new limits. And when we have an elderly population that is tattooed, I imagine it could be like the elders in tribal culture, you know, where these are the stories of where you've been. These are very particular to you. This is your life collected in a visible way, you know, a set of anchors from all of your experiences. And you can see them as badges of your victories or defeats or just all of the events that have come together to form this body of knowledge that you carry around inside of you. And in that way, I think my mom's wrong. Don't tell her I said that. She'll never figure out how to use her iPhone to listen to this anyway. Yay! Curse, curse, curse. (laughs) But tattoos do give people, like especially younger people, that way to prove themselves and to prove they're part of this world they are here, who they are. It's right there. You can see it. Mm-hmm. And it becomes part of their personal myth. And the idea of a personal myth is just so interesting. Oh, you can get lost in these texts. <laughs> Which we did. A little bit. But the idea of a personal myth is so interesting. Okay. We're going we're gonna to mess with you a little bit. We're not talking about Freud. No, we're talking about his BFF. We're talking about Freud's BFF. We're going to talk about Jung. So, Jung is one of those things that you have to like clear a day and take a deep breath and drink lots of coffee and let yourself go into it because it's a little spacey and it's a little weird. But oh my God, there are so many just like golden moments when you're reading through one of his texts. Right, and one thing that he talks about is personal myth. Well, he talked a lot about self mm-hmm. and the different kind of types of self. This can sometimes be called the Jungian self. Mm-hmm. And, of course, his ideas change over time. He's not as a stalwart as Freud was. No, Freud had ideas, and he was like, those were good. I'll stick with those. But he says you can describe self in two ways. As a autobiography or biography... To where you look at those historical particularities in a lived life. Okay. So, your facts. So, hardcore anchors. Yeah, just the facts. The other way is the myth. And, you know, a myth is just that collective and cultural story. It's not always historical. But, in general, it connects humans to a non-human, to nature and the divine. So, self can be both narrative, but also conceptual. Preach, brother. For Young, he describes the personal myth as something that is ideal. It's geared to the uniqueness of one's own psyche. So this idea of who we are tied to the historical 
stories that we have, but also the myths that we have about ourselves and the things we choose to be the important stories in our life. So in this way of looking at self, what we're saying is that we apply a personal lens to our experiences that helps kind of reduce conflict and cognitive dissonance. Like we can't, like it's a way to reconcile all the things that have happened to you in a way that is healthy and functional Yes, have, yes, having like a functional personal myth, or as we'll talk about in a second, like what's now called a narrative identity, allows you to adapt well, okay. to be more adaptive to the things that have happened. But Young kind of goes off on a little tangent. I think it's interesting. Let's follow Young down that rabbit hole, shall we? And he talks about, and this is kind of the early 20th century, that most modern myths for Young are non-projective. So there's old myths we're looking at, we're like, why does the sun rise? Why does the corn grow? Etc. Well, and, the turtle with us on its back. Right. I know, Easy. Yeah, okay. Come on. Done. Next. But in our kind of modern world, we've taken that need for that. You know, that is the area for science, the outer world. But we can use these myths since religion is now becoming so unpopular. You probably never would have guessed how unpopular it has really become. And we can use these as security and solace. And a way to connect worlds. And he says, and he kind of changes on this, that we're not connecting the inner and outer world. That's, that's obviously not true. We are. Uh, because, no, I think it is true. Well, no, he even says it's not. <laughs> no, I think it's true, though. I think that we have completely gone inside of ourselves. But ourselves interact we're, with the outer world. We're not thinking that we're crazy because the moon is full. No, but people do. Yes, I have Facebook. Okay. <laughs> well... Mute them. <laughs> Hide those people from your newsfeed. They are crazy. But no, I, I do think that we have disconnected from the outer world. Because, oh, maybe we haven't. Because we do believe in, like, seasonal affective disorder and being sad because the weather's bad and things like that. We, do, we still do. Well, there's just always going to be that connection between the inner and outer world. It's something that will always be part of us. How who we are is affected by the things that happen. And things happen because of who we are. Right, and I don't think he's debating that and saying that we've disconnected from the outer world. I think he's saying that we don't think that we're a product of it, that we view ourselves as separate from nature and insulated. But that's so inaccurate. No, people don't go outside. You can't just think of outside. You have no. to think of the human connections that we make every day. I mean, right. I know you don't. No, I don't. You I don't. sit in a little bubble. I like my bubble. I believe that there's no connection to the outside world. Leave me alone. No, but I don't think that that's it. I think because we, we do internalize all those relationships. And like instead of wondering why the sun rises and why the corn grows, we wonder why we are passive aggressive sometimes. Right. I mean, there definitely isn't a turning inward. But you wouldn't worry about if you were passive aggressive if you didn't have to interact with the world and be passive aggressive. Right. But we only care about those bad behaviors because of the way they affect us. Right. But you can't completely discount the outside world. No, but we believe that we're causing it and we believe we're receiving the effect of it. So we have removed the outside world from the process. I'm going to say I won that argument. I don't think so. I just, I know you don't. We vote, guys. <laughs> Get on Twitter and tell us who you think wins this argument, because <laughs> we're never going to finish the podcast if we keep going. To move on, after I just won that argument, to move on to more of the modern idea of personal myth, now called narrative identity, and this is something that was coined by Dan McAdams. Just because he wanted to coin a word because personal myth wasn't working for him. But he defines narrative identity as one's reconstructed past 
perceived present, and imagined future. This narrative is a story, and this is kind of where he adds a little to it. You know, it has characters, it has mm. episodes, mm-hmm. has imagery, setting, plot, themes, and even follows those traditional models of storytelling. So just like a traditional story, you have a beginning. The inciting incident. And then you have kind of that middle and the climax. If you're lucky, you have a climax. But no, I'm sorry. The middle is going to be where you're questing and you're conflicting and things build to a head and you have to deal with it immediately and the action culminates in a final battle of sorts. Of sorts. And then you have the end. Which is just falling action or the denouement. And that's just something that is inherent in the stories we tell of ourselves. But this is something that helps with that psychological adaptation, as you said. And if you have those positive stories and those are the ones that define your narrative identity, that helps you be a more well-adapted person. But there's this great quote from a neuroscientist, Damasio, says, Consciousness begins when brains acquire the power of telling a story. Well, you know I like that. I should get that tattooed. I was thinking I should paint it on my daughter's walls, but whatever. I do think that there's something to that. I mean, a lot of times they'll be like, oh, when you're talking about being a child or whatever, you'll be like, oh, but that's before I can really remember. I don't think I really had a memory until I was in third grade or whatever. You know, like, oh, I just remember bits and pieces. And you sort of discount that information. Well, you know, the origins of this begin at that time, begin during childhood, whenever Mm -hmm. you start telling those stories. Around Remy's age, around five. Mm-hmm. And it just builds up from there. In other cultures, people do not have as early memories of childhood. Are you serious? Yeah. It's just like one line in the paper. And I thought it was so interesting. No, that is really interesting. Now I want to read a book about it. Who's written a book about it? Send us a letter. No, don't send us a letter. That'd be weird. Send us an email. <laughs> I read this chapter from the psych book and it's by the guy, Dan McAdams. But by creating these stories, by creating a self, by choosing the memories that we choose to define ourselves with, we are coming to terms with society, with the idea of self, through this narrative identity. You know something that I remember doing in third grade when I was very young? We'd studied Native American cultures in my gifted English and social studies classes. And one thing we had to do was make our own winter count. What's a winter count? Okay, so you would take, it was something that was done in Native tribes, don't ask me, I learned this in third grade, but every winter they would put a symbol for the year on this winter count, and it would be like the defining event of that year. It was how they marched the year when the harvest was done, and there was like ceremony, and I think it was usually done on animal skins, don't really remember... But I remember the idea sticking with me and kind of thinking like, like at the end of every year, I'm like, what's my symbol? What would I add? And it's really funny because it's this kind of condensation of the idea of putting symbols like tattoos and the idea of marking a narrative and the idea of handing down history and tradition and identity all coming together in this one weird little thing I remember from third grade. But that's what this makes me think of. Hopefully that wasn't something your third grade teacher made up. <laughs> well, if it was, good job, Deborah Warren. Happy to have had you, lady. You were awesome. Shout out. She was amazing. <laughs> but you're right. You know, we, we pick those memories. We pick those ideas that are important to us. And we have, of course, that autobiographical approach to things and the choosing myths. But we also can have a, a situational performance where 
We will tell and enact as many different kinds of stories in social life as there are social situations. Well, it's, it's kind of that idea of like code switching. Okay. So if you're in an environment that demands you to like, oh, trauma bond? Is it that? Is it like sometimes we need to... Tra- that is one situation. Okay, so trauma bonding, as defined by the scholar Mark Marin, is that point in a relationship where you want to feel emotionally close to someone, so you tell them all your dark shit. And so that's like one kind of story you can tell. Or if you want to... If someone gives you a compliment and you want to receive that compliment well, you'll be like, well, thanks. I really worked hard on learning how to blah. Is it that kind of thing? Or is it more like... yeah? No, it's, it's more... Okay, so it's like locker room talk versus like when you're with your girlfriend? Yeah, I mean, it's it's like whatever social situation you're in, you can have a different narrative identity. Those stories that are important in that social situation can be different than another one. So So job interview versus... What you had the person you present at work Uh can be very different than the person you present at home. Okay. Or with your friends. Or at your bowling league. Or at your microbrewery meeting. Are you in a bowling league I don't know about? (laughs) No, it's microbrewery. Okay, sorry. All I can think about is Fred Flintstone and that stupid hat. The water buffalo hat. (laughs) But these are a form of cultural text. Okay. Just like legends, they create it, they grow, they change, they proliferate, and they eventually die. Some of them do. And how they... Change is related to your social norms, your rules, your traditions, and just what is prevalent in society today. It's so interesting. Like when you mentioned they die, I was thinking about, we were all at the table with my grandmother on some holiday, and I was talking to her, and she said something about the time she lived in Oregon, sewing for that family. And my mom and her brothers and sisters were like, What? It was just like something she'd failed to mention over the past 60 years until I was talking to her and the situation reminded her of that thing that had happened that time when she was living in Oregon. Like they thought she'd lived in Louisiana her entire life, had no idea that she'd ever lived out of state. Right. And so that story was not part of that narrative identity she had of that kind of motherly mm-hmm. role, the role that she saw herself in now. It was an old story it was relegated to the back pages mm-hmm. it was it would have been in like a, a note at the, in an appendix i guess i loved finding that out about her i love her becoming more human and not just a symbol and i think that that's what those stories that we relegate to the back pages sort of do for us you know they're the little ticks and weird experiences that probably carry a lot more information than we would like to believe true so an interesting thing is that you can look at Someone we talked about before, Erickson, and he looked at you know your different stages of development. I'm very familiar with these. Yes, and so in adolescence, your stage that you're trying to accomplish is uh, so your major conflict during adolescence is who am I? Your identity, right? And so in his work, you supposedly, and maybe back in the 50s when this was done, it was a little more correct, but you. <laughs> accomplish that you develop your identity and that's something that is so not accurate today no we have a very extended adolescence now and that is something that came after world war ii when kind of gi bill sent people back to school and then we had the expectation that every generation following would be educated there are a ton of sociocultural factors that led into that you know even the movement away from agrarian society 
we did not get married. We stopped getting married when we were 18 and we stopped being heads of household at 18. And so our adolescence became longer and longer. And now you see people who are settling down with families who still have not accomplished Erickson's stage of who am I? Right. But you can even argue that the idea is complete hogwash in the first place. No, you couldn't. It's a nice idea. It's got a rubric and everything. It does. There's like a nice little outline. You could be tested on it in your psych 101 class. But that idea that your identity is just created and it's just there and that's your identity when you're 18, it happens. It's kind of ridiculous. No, it is. And I hate that people are expected to go to college and pick college majors and know what they want to be and how they want to spend the rest of their life. When they're 18 years old, they're not even allowed to drink alcohol legally. They've only been driving for two years and they're doing it badly. I hate it so much. I want to write a letter to someone. Write one to Erickson. He's not going to accept it. He's (laughs) dead. He's dead. (laughs) I'm going to get a medium. (laughs) And we're going to talk to him about this. Talk to him. Then we're calling Houdini. Chip coffee. (laughs) Give us a call. But, you know, our identity changes through time, as does our story. But that idea of creating our own narrative has changed so much in the last 15, 20 years. And there's been an idea, and it's been circulating around for a long time, but it's really gained a lot of steam recently with social media's prevalence, is the idea of an imaginary audience. Oh, that was okay. So I think this is interesting. That used to be almost completely and totally associated with adolescence. No, it was considered like a normal form of adolescence, like a normal stage of adolescence. And now it's just ubiquitous. Right, because we kind of think of it as imaginary audience, but we actually have a real audience. (laughs) But it is imaginary. Like, I'm not looking at Facebook. Even if I'm your friend, I'm not looking at Facebook. Don't worry about it. It's cool. I'm looking and I'm judging. You are, actually. <laughs> like You say it like you're joking, but you're not. But it was considered a part of the normal developmental process through adolescence where you just feel like you're being watched. If you, you know, you're doing the task right if, and if people are judging you. And this is something that is still pervasive in adolescence. I see it plenty with kids with just anxiety problems because they take this just a little too far. Mm-hmm. But originally... It was considered natural, normal part of adolescence, and it was part of the process of developing a healthy understanding of one's relationship with the world. And it's something you would grow out of through your adolescence. But guess what? Now we don't so much. Now there really is someone in the center tower of the panopticon staring us down at all hours of the day. Yes, there truly is. Yes, now there is. Jeremy Bentham was right. God. But and so we can see in the prevalence of social media that this idea of this egocentric personal fable that we're supposed to grow out of during adolescence is really nothing that we are growing out of. No, we've actually systematized it. We've actually like labeled social media use as creating our story. It's even labeled. My story. Story, my feed, the images that you send out into the world will be labeled my story. It's right there. It's labeled it. You don't even have to extrapolate, which we love to do, but we don't have to do right now. No, we don't. Oh, I feel lazy. So in the use of social media, we are using abbreviated symbols, short text, videos, GIFs, variety of media to kind of create a moving portrait 
a constantly changing mosaic that's supposed to come together like a magic eye in a doctor's office and give us some sort of idea of who we are. And not just us, but anyone else who cares to look. And that's a really interesting idea to me because it is such a part of the oral tradition. It's such a part of dialogue and, you know, sharing discourse with interlocutors and all of these things that, you know, we've always associated with the verbal realm. Right, but it's replaced that. Right, so it's written content, which has replaced a verbal content. So in theory, language has always fallen into two different categories, the spoken text and the written text. And because of the sort of spontaneous narrative quality and discursive tone associated with social media use or even text messaging, the lines between verbal and written language have become very, 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 very blurred. And so the question that I wanted to look at when I was researching self and social media, just because of the content of our podcast more than anything, is can folklore, which is supposed to be sort of in the verbal tradition, exist in a written format? Does it count? And I think it can, because we are verbalizing using a keyboard. Right. I mean, we've talked about so many ways that folklore is transmitted via the internet or via through social media. I mean, a lot of these creepypastas are transmitted through social media. And those are some of the new modern folklore and urban legends. So one of the reasons that I say that social media use and text messaging and email and things like that do not fall into the category of archetypically written language is because they are not necessarily composed. They are put together spontaneously. Right. What is what did the Facebook sass used to say? What are you doing? What are you doing or what are you feeling? And then it used to say like Jacob is Mm-hmm. And it was supposed to be like you can pick from a, a menu bar. Like originally when they first introduced the status, I don't know if you remember this. This is some old timer shit we're about to go into right here. When they first introduced the status, it was like Samantha is and you were supposed to pick like studying, surfing the web. A variety of like six things, right? I'm surfing the web. I've never surfed the web. <laughs> but but then it was like it had this option. The last option was other and you could click other and you could fill in the blank. And that's what everyone did. That kind of became popular a little bit. A little bit. And then Twitter happened. I remember on our honeymoon being like, what is Twitter? <laughs> so old. Why would anyone want to do that? You'd ha- And then you go, well, you'd have to have a smartphone to really do it. <laughs> Check us out on Twitter. Just the story of pod. <laughs> and I was like, when is everyone going to have a smartphone? That's so dumb. Hey, I, I bought the first iPhone. I know you did. I didn't have the money to. I wanted it. I was so jealous. Like, he's going to win every argument now for sure. <laughs> but Dundies, who we, you know, we like to talk about Dundies. The Freudian folklore. Our Freudian folklorist friend states that technology isn't stamping out folklore. Rather, it is becoming a vital factor in the transmission of folklore. And it is providing an exciting source of inspiration for the new generation. So if Dundee says that the technology isn't stamping out folklore, technology must not be stamping out folklore. That's all you need to know. We're done. We're done. But another folklorist named Bronner, who wrote about public folklore or virtualizing and digitizing folklore. Virtual reality? 
virtual reality. You need goggles. Cool. Yeah. It's like a new wave video. Like a virtual boy? I don't know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm okay with it. But he speculates that people's need to put out these little anecdotes, post, blog, vlog, whatever. This was written early 2000s, late 90s. He speculates that our need to express ourselves online is sort of akin to latronalia. What the hell is that? Well, it's a very, very academic, clinical-sounding word that means writing on the bathroom walls. Oh, I love latronalia. <laughs> you do. It's one of my favorites. It gives me something to do. So there was a well-known linguist named Alan Walker-Reed, and he described the reason... People might write on the bathroom wall, and this is way more eloquent than writing on the bathroom wall deserves, the well-known yearning to leave a record of one's existence from 1937. Do they have bathroom stalls then? I want to go to a bathroom stall and write this quote, and it would be so meta that Grant Morrison's head would explode. (laughs) Sigil magic accomplished! But Dundee's, again, good old Dundee's, Comes back and he has a, a more down to earth idea about latronalia and writing on the internet. Is it Freudian? Oh yes, honey, of course it is Freudian. Does it have to do with the mother? Close. Oral fixation? Nah. I'm gonna try all the stages. Okay, good plan. Like it. Um poop. It's poop. It's definitely poop. So Dundee says that one's infantile desire to play with feces was displaced by the desire to leave one's mark on the wall. Thanks, Dundies. Thanks, Dundies. But in this paper, they go on to speculate that this might be why we see so much like uh, effluvia um, mentioned in internet slang. Like, effluvia is anything that comes out of the body, and technically, fuck is counted in there because it's technically a fluid. Fuck counts as effluvia? Yeah. Okay, whatever. According to Steven Pinker, which we can talk about him all day, if you want to, give me a call. I would love to talk about Steven Pinker with you guys. But you see things like, holy shit, oh my fucking God, laugh till I peed on myself, laugh till I poop myself, rolling on the floor, laughing, pee on myself, like everything has to do with pee, poop. O-R-F-L-P-O? Is that I don't know. I, I don't, don't know if it's so. a thing. I think you just made that up. No, it was in the list. It was definitely in his list. Okay. And maybe it was a bigger thing in the early 90s, and people were like, that's weird. Let's not say that anymore. And I was like, good job, guys. So that's just a little fun aside about how Facebook is like a toilet. It is so accurate (laughs) in so many ways. Since we've been talking about tattoos and personal identity, I think it's interesting to look at this idea from Juan Enriquez, who says that your online life is as permanent as a tattoo. Kind of like what we've been talking about, that you can use tattoos to identify yourself and put you in a certain group and kind of as permanent. What you put out on the internet is there forever. It really is. You can't delete it. I made a like Twitter account for a minute in college when I thought I was going to do a blog about Lost uh, really? And, yes. <laughs> yes. It was a moment. It was when I was up at 3 a.m. and I should have been studying. I was like, I'm going to make Twitter and I'm going to have this awesome lost account and everyone's going to love it. And now, like, that picture still comes up when you Google my name. Like, I hate it so much. Are you, like, wearing a Dharma shirt and have, like, fake dirt on your face? No. It's, like, it's just not a cute picture of me. But anyway, it's there forever. That was a 3 a.m. bad decision. So, on the, the Ohio State University's blog, I found this article called Tattooing as Social Media. It's really interesting. It was written by a woman named Kathleen Dickey. And she says that the visibility characteristics of tattoos is what likens them to social media. 
Just like the addictive social media status updates, Instagram posts, Twitter tweets, etc., tattoos serve as a means of getting your personal message across to the people you come into contact with daily. I'd like to advocate that when done properly, tattoos are an overall healthy social media to be embraced by society, not shunned or stigmatized. Right, if you're truly choosing things that do represent yourself and represent your story, it can be a very positive thing. Right, but how many times have you said, like, oh my god, I'm so glad I didn't have Facebook in high school? Oh, definitely. MySpace, thank God, went away. Which, the other day we were with friends and looked up old MySpace pictures. So entertaining. Oh my god, the things I... I, po- I blogged on MySpace for a hot minute. Oh, it's bad. It's so bad. One of the things I've always thought about is, like, you know, now people have, like, a five-year social media history by the time they apply for college. Oh yeah, when we were applying for residency out of medical school, everyone changed their names. On Facebook? Yeah, Yeah. like just to their first and middle name, so that you could not search and couldn't be found, because it is widely known that people that are doing interviews for jobs and residency and different positions like that will go and look at your social media accounts, and they'll be like, this dude just is like drinking and smoking weed, and there's no way in hell I'm hiring him. But that's so funny because it's such a morphing of the original intent of social media, which was supposed to be like a framework in which people could interact with one another, regardless of where they were in the world. It was supposed to be something that was able to allow people to keep in touch, even if they were very far away. I mean, that's still there. No, definitely. I mean, we use it that way now. Like The only reason I'm on Facebook is to like post pictures of the kids. Because our parents would text us every day pestering for them if we didn't. Another sociologist named Stefana Broadbent... Interestingly, there's a famous tattooed lady named Broadbent. One of their related. I don't know. Has nothing to do with tattoos. But she says, we are adapting to our own inventive excellence. And she actually speaks a lot about the new intimacy that we're allowed because of social media and the way that we can keep in touch with people. You know, we may have 200 friends, but we only talk to four to six normally. And so she sees a lot of good in it. Meanwhile, Angela Guzman says, like most things... There are addictive risks of social media. We're constantly bombarding ourselves with our social selves, and we're creating unneeded stress and anxiety. Yeah, there's so much writing about the kind of stress and anxiety that social media can cause. You know, a great little term that's around now is FOMO. What does that mean? Fear of missing out. You have that. Yeah. So people, you know, posting just all the fun things they're doing and they're able to choose the things they post. They're only going to choose the positive. You're not going to post. Most people will not post, you know, like, oh, got in a big fight today or, oh, hey, had a shitty day at work. I mean, people do post that. People definitely post that. I know. I know that. But mostly people are posting pictures of themselves at the concert or pictures of their cute outfit or pictures of their new tattoo. Yeah. Seen that one a lot seen a lot of bad decisions a lot of bad decisions out there guys so dickie goes on to say that there's also a fun fact that a tattoo despite being extremely personal is a form of social media whatever one chooses to put on their bodies especially in such a permanent fashion they're visually projecting themselves their ideas essentially advertising themselves Similar to a permanent Facebook status or a phone text signature. And so you can see tattooing, you can see Facebook as a new form of narrative identity. 
It's something that, although it definitely can be negative, can be an important aspect of our lives in that it can create a positive narrative identity and allow us to be more adaptive to our new virtual social environment. Well, and that's always been the function of conversation, really. Like, if you look at something stated by Mead in, I believe, the 50s or 60s, long time ago, years ago. Long time ago. Long time ago. Really, you weren't alive then. You don't have to say it like I'm being silly. We're not that old. Mead states that the process of conversation is one in which an individual has not only the right, but the duty of talking to the community of which he or she is a part of and bringing about those changes which take place through interaction with individuals. Deciding how important it is that we're interacting with other people, that we're creating this social community. Right. If you don't speak up, you can't complain. Almost is what I feel like that says. Mead's theories about self and self and social self sort of hinge on the idea that we have these very symbolic interactions where we craft an image that belongs to us. But our image hinges on its likeness or difference to other images we've been confronted with in our lifetime. How we appear to others is vital because the appearance of itself is social we are reflecting and projecting the pieces of society and the pieces of culture that we've chosen to make our own right we decide what in group we're going to be a part of right so we're sifting through society kind of deciding what is correct and incorrect we're analyzing and synthesizing information and we internalize the pieces that we agree with that seem right to us and as we internalize them We have to push them back out into the world. We have to let people know that we have agreed or disagreed. Right. This is me. I am posting all of these pro-life videos. This is part of who I am. You need to know this. I've sifted through and I have decided that this thing, even though it doesn't cite its sources, embodies who I am. So we can only define ourselves in relationship to a culture or a society that already exists. We can't define ourselves on issues that we're not affected by or we are not privy to. If you don't know what's going on in this corner of the world, you can't use that to make your identity. If you don't know about this moment in history, you can't decide how it affects you. You have to have the structure already existing in order to separate and define yourself in the ongoing debate or conversation that is society. And we do this because we need people to either accept us or shun us based on what we believe. We need to know whether we're going to be heard or be pushed away. Right, we are creating those those boundaries that we've talked so much about. And so we create the self to participate in social exchanges. It becomes a commodity. Right, we create this narrative identity, which can be the stories we tell, can be our physical appearance, the images we post, and images have become such an important part of it nowadays, with most people posting images on Facebook with their updates. No one's posting just text anymore like they used to. But also like the popularity of Instagram. It's purely photos. So we don't do this because of an innate need to express who we are we do this because we need to define where we stand in society it's a social system not a bodily function right but as we've talked about we can use the body as a form of self it can be commodified the self can be commodified in social media and it can be used to project our thoughts and what group we want to be in 
But the problem with that is that we can take this personal idea of who we are or what we want to be, and it can even become like a self-fulfilling prophecy to where our expectations are revealed and validated by the company that we keep and in this way meaning like who we follow and who we like and our ideas are supported by our friends nowadays so many people get news and information from social media and if it's all the kind of friend group that in group that you're in it's mostly going to support what you think well like that's one thing i always think about when i see people acting out i've been trolled I've been trolled was when I was writing a lot of feminist stuff and things like that. And I would get like these guys that would just say these hateful things. And I was like, how can you think it's okay to say that? And then I realized it's because they saturate themselves in a group of people that think it's okay to say that. That kind of MRA, pickup artisty thing. And it is such a subculture. But when that is what you're exposing yourself to, it adjusts your norms. It redefines social boundaries. And that's even more prevalent and more likely to happen online because you have that added distance. It's not just saying it to someone at a coffee shop. Anyone who's ever walked by a construction site knows that that social norm can happen in real life where everyone's catcalling and saying inappropriate things. It's much more likely to happen when they don't have to face immediate consequences for what they do. Right. We are building this group that supports that idea or supports whatever idea we think is correct you know i am definitely guilty of like going through and unfollowing a bunch of people on facebook that are like huge conservative republican people because i just don't want to hear their latrinalia so another theory about how we define self and social context comes from burger and it hinges on the idea of doubt reduction It can be thought of as the uncertainty reduction theory of interpersonal communication, and it attempts to explain how people try to learn and anticipate why people do what they do. This is the scientific method approach to talking to people. You have a hypothesis, you test the hypothesis, you get your results, and you go, "Mm, maybe I need to tweak the hypothesis just a little bit. As we try to reduce doubt, we estimate how well or how poorly what we're going to say or project will be received by the group that we're seeking acceptance with. And in doing this, we have to define relationships who are our close friends, who are our kind of friends, who are just friends on Facebook, etc. And we use these definitions as sort of natural machinations. And these definitions of relationships kind of help us form a model that allows us to quickly decide whether we want to opt in or opt out of relationships with people. Right, so it allows us to create like social norms. Mm-hmm. Social norms or predictable patterns of interaction. That can be even something as simple as courtesy, like knowing that if you're courteous to someone, they will likely be courteous to you. And it also allows us to kind of create what Berger calls a social vehicle or a self that we put on in order to have the most productive, generic social interactions. This is what's worked out best for me in the past. I know if I say these things and do these things, people will not mess with me. People will be nice to me, whatever. And when we're doing this, when we're embodying our kind of most positive, baseline, generic, nice self, we're allowed to seek out relationships that are built on mutual positivity. 
eventually, if we're lucky, we can find people who have similar passions, thoughts, ideas, and even like us and we like them. And in that way, our social interactions can move beyond the sort of functional, mechanical, baseline, surface level stuff into real emotional intimacy. And that's something I think that has been an interesting development over the last few years is that people are realizing that these online interactions can be just as important as real life interactions. I mean, we both have good friends that we've only met a few times that are just through kind of online communities. One of my favorite friends, one of my very favorite people in the world is Dwayne Feenstra. And I've never met Dwayne. He mentioned it the other day and I was like, yes, we have. We've met. He's like, no, we haven't. I was like, oh my God, you're right. We do. We did a podcast forever, worked together in comics. And I like would not believe him when he told me we'd never met in real life. And he does a great comic called Arrow Girl. It's kind of an all-ages comic. You should totally pause, go read it. For sure. It's so cute. And then there's another theory of how we form self in social settings by Walther with Lisp. And he says that it allows us to form impressions and develop relationships, which I'm totally going to buy. But he goes on to say that online relationships can be hyper-personal. Now, why are they, why are they hyper-personal? Because you can kind of drop the pretense and you can just exchange ideas. And that way you're like freeing your mind and the rest will follow. You're, you're coming together over ideas first. And it's like if you really like someone, there's always the potential that you could meet in real life or have another interaction online. And he calls that the shadow of the future. It's like if you like someone and you let your guard down enough to have another interaction with them, you're committing to seeking them out in a way that doesn't involve like actually meeting face to face. And so it's all about like an idea exchange. And you get rid of that idea of I'm never going to see these people again. I can do anything I want to because there's always the possibility that you'll see them again. In an ideal online world, you're collecting followers and these people will actually be following you forever and they will be looking at what you post. They'll be coming back to the same places like gaming or whatever that you do and you want that association because in the online world, kind of follows and connections are capital or status symbols. But the downfall with this is that we tend to, and verbal behavior in general, has really always intended to create an idealized portrait of who we are. Right, you're able to choose what's in your narrative identity. Selective self-presentation, it's called. Or another great term. It can be considered a performance, public performance. So through this personal performance that we're taking part in just by participating in any form of social media, we are becoming both the identity maker and the audience participant, which means that we're the person who is generating this identity, as well as commenting or watching, viewing, following other people's creations. It's a very reflexive relationship with real-time feedback. And Pearson states that the discourse on social media kind of straddles the public and private spheres, which is a really interesting idea because a lot of I mean, like the feminine mystique all has to do with women being relegated to the private sphere and not having access to the public sphere. And this idea that you're kind of shut in a home. And there's been a lot of writing since the feminine mystique. Don't know if you know that. In this way, 
when you have this sort of bridge between public and private, you might have someone who is a stay-at-home mom that still has access to the outside world, who still has a public performance to make. Through this building of a story, through this performance of this play you're creating, through this performance of this character that you're creating, you can definitely change those characteristics that you present. Right, and... You can express things that you like more fervently that you might be a little more reserved on, but it can be kind of polarizing, almost tend to bias you a little more one way or another. And that comes because it is a product of your expression. It's a product of wanting to be expressive, draw an audience, make a big statement. And in that same way, you'll exaggerate personal characteristics just for the sake of presentation. Really hammer your point home. Right. And so kind of as you were talking about, you're taking that feedback in. Mm-hmm. Taking what gets the positive response. Yes. What gets the most likes. Yes. What does not get a response. And you're going to, it's just basic human nature. You're going to move towards what gets your positive response. Dude, that's like basic rat nature. It's like Pavlov. It's like ringing the bell. It's like pushing the button. It's... It's just basic reward behaviorism 101. Right, but now you're getting even more, like a very direct effect on how you build your personality, how you build your social narrative through that interaction with others through social media. Well, I think it's kind of commodified social interaction in a really interesting way because like you said, likes, follows, whatever. You're getting that little rush of success, achievement, whatever. And it pushes you into sort of an exaggerated performance that you might not otherwise adopt in your real life. Right. And, you you know, you get rewarded for going with that group, going with the group you want. You can pick any example. I said pro-life earlier, so let's go with that. By continuing to post those videos and articles and liking all those things, you're putting yourself as that in-group, but you're also like interacting with it and you're saying, this is me, this is what I believe in. And you are more solidifying that role. And that could be through anything. I mean, you could talk about books and politics, please don't, and movies and music and research about vaccines or whatever, and develop that kind of group that you have. And that feedback you get encourages you or discourages you to continue on with that future interaction with social media and future interaction with posts. Right. And as you try to get to the upper echelons of any group or team that you've sort of spontaneously created or sought to be part of through social media, the more upwardly mobile you seek to be the more extreme your views can become. And the more extreme the people at the top usually are, as you specify your interests more and more. Well, I guess that, that begs the question, like, where is your true self? Is it is it within you? Is it how you present yourself in the physical world? Is it how you present yourself in the more social media virtual world? That we said, you need, sometimes you can drop pretense there, mm-hmm. but also... Sometimes you can become all pretense. Yeah. You're completely affected by those non-pretense <laughs> likes and, and positive feedback. Right. Well, most people tend to understand that they are engaging in some type of performance. And they believe that their true self is located offline. However, there are some people who will internalize that 
sort of rush of having a lot of people react positively to whatever they've done. And those characteristics can be internalized. And if they're very extreme or very rash, that can have a negative consequence in real life because people are not as permissive. If you speak up in real life, you will have someone say, I don't know if I agree with you more than you will online because people are self-selecting what media they take in. So they've probably already muted you if they don't agree. And they can do that passively, whereas you might encounter more real world obstacles. But overall, the thing about social media is it creates a need for a more active awareness of self-presentation than we've ever had in the past. Because it collapses the public and private sphere. We can be always on if we want to. And there's this very unspoken rule that we can gain status by interacting with users who have a higher status or just getting more people to look at us, broadening our audience, getting more followers. But in a way that can just be extrapolated, or really, I guess this is extrapolated from that, like if you're interacting with the popular kid, you know, that's a way you Oh my get God, to I forgot this was high school. You're yeah. so right. No, I hated high school. I blocked it out. Like I never cared. God, you're right. This is just extended high school because, like, I didn't. Well, I, didn't I mean, like we like we talked about, it's like an extended adolescence trying to find your identity, worrying about what the imaginary audience thinks about. This you. is so funny because I've been viewing this as so theoretical, and my rubric for understanding this was online interaction. Like, I did not go, oh, it's like high school. Like, I never had that moment in reading this. It's so funny. There are some people that write about kind of the the negative effects of social media, and they say that we're expected to kind of conform to this very generic set of checkboxes, and we're expected to kind of choose from pre-existing categories rather than creating our own. And in recent years, this has come down to, you know, things like gender or ethnicity, relationship structure, and people who identify themselves as outside of the dominant group feel especially vulnerable when their ability to express their identity is challenged. They experience anxiety about how these portrayals will be interpreted by others. And they worry that in this world where everyone's looking at just the quick profile view, whatever, that when their symbolic representation is taken away, they lose all personal context. Now, interestingly, our offline personas do come in to play when we're figuring out how we want to use social media and what function it serves for us. There's a study done by Tosin in 2010 that cites that people who are more introverted naturally are more likely to use social media as a substitute for real-life interactions. So, I mean, that, that kind of seems obvious, but so what about extroverts? Extroverts tend to see social media as more of an extension of pre-existing real-life relationships. Ah, so they're getting that feedback. They're getting that energy from other people. It was so great meeting you the other night. You know that girl? (laughs) Exclamation point, smiley face, heart emoji, OMG. Introverts tend to sort of replace relationships where they're not going to go out and meet new people because they have their friends online. Similar to when I spilled a latte on my computer and fried it, I freaked out and cried and said, oh no, all of my friends are in there. That's true. Still is. Hi, friends. Hi, friends. So the people who see social media as more of a substitute are more likely to concoct sort of a false or exaggerated persona for online use and view it as more of an escape. So in this way, you have people who are very introverted sort of adopting the character of a more extroverted person in order to attract friends, win friends, influence people 
and get all Andrew Carnegie up in this bitch where you have people who are more extroverted just sort of continuing to express their real life persona. So the idea of, of creating identity and also the idea of having different identities and different social situations. And I mean, we know that that's been done forever mm-hmm. through all of humanity, but it's especially being done now and it's all there for the world to see. It is, and it's one of those ideas that we talked about earlier was, you know, the social self creating unnecessary stress and anxiety. And I think that people who feel that there's a big difference between the person they project online and the person they are in real life are more likely to feel a greater degree of dissatisfaction with their real world persona. And that can be very damaging. Right, because they're not using it to be more well-adjusted. No, they're just creating an alternate story rather than internalizing and owning their own experiences. Yeah, so they have trouble resolving those two identities. Because how do you be two different people? And you can have those different social personalities that you present, but you're still the same person. It's just the parts that you kind of choose to show. Highlight. Yeah, but if you're creating this completely new identity... How do you resolve that with your actual self? It can be very damaging to people. And one way this happens in sort of a organic way, in a healthy way, is that a lot of people use social media as kind of a testing ground for identity. And this is especially common among adolescents. So in viewing social media as a testing ground for identity, you can watch people sort of alternate between different identities on various platforms. And they sort of tweak their presentation for each platform or each username or each account that they might have. And they're allowed to kind of try out new behaviors and see how others react. It's sort of a a social experiment for people who don't want to get out and do this in the bar or wherever. But, but, you know, through through time, people used to do this. You know, they would, you know, dress a certain way and, you know, they'd be goth one year and a punk the other year and be the cheerleader the next year. Does this sound familiar? I was never gothic. Okay. I was just on Quiz Bowl team. Captain, shut up. Sometimes when people are kind of conducting these very self-aware experiments and trying out different things and seeing what works and what doesn't, they might forget what their original intention was. And when they forget what the intention was, they just feel the pressure to continue doing it. And that can create a lot of anxiety and really damage their self-image. Every time we have interactions with people and we want to continue having interactions with people we're creating a sphere of obligation we're getting ourselves involved we're offering a part of ourselves to this group so as we create these spheres of obligation we extend ourselves we offer a piece of ourselves to these groups we risk fracturing our narrative identity we risk interrupting and sort of circumventing the natural processes that we've adapted to have where we can create a cohesive story for ourselves. And the more fractured an identity becomes, the more stress we heap on ourselves. The more narcissistic we are, or the lower our self-esteem is, the more of a boost we get from social media. Well, that makes sense. I mean, people constantly liking your cute photo or whatever, I mean, it's just going to give you that boost. No, it really is. And the more you need it, the more it matters, I guess is what that says, just in very basic terms. And the more you're going to code into that group or you're going to try to post things to where you will get that positive response. You know, you're 
responding to that positive feedback. Well, it reminds me of our You Are What You Eat episode where we talked about the Proana post. Oh, so disturbing. It really was. There was one girl's story we included in that episode where she had said that the feedback, the positive feedback on her eating disorder really prompted her to commit. And it was a very self-destructive behavior, but she was getting positive feedback. And so she said, consequences be damned. I want to have this good thing in my life and really did some serious damage to her body that will have lasting consequences, unfortunately. And I I think that that's like the ugly side of social media. It is absolutely documented and studied that identity has to be negotiated in order to maintain audience allegiance. And that's sort of the, the sorry, we're going to quote Dan Savage a minute here, the price of admission. If you want these boosts, these likes, these little dopamine burst throughout your day, you're going to have to conform to what your audience wants to see, even if that conflicts with who you might believe yourself to be. However, in groups where users have sort of a linked identity, in considering the ugly side of social media, you can really start to see that when there's any kind of negative tinge to social media connections, they can become very disruptive to self-concepts. And they can create this almost paranoid environment, a tense environment, where your membership in a group and the allegiance of your audience and the support of your followers is never quite assured. You don't know that they're diehard, that they're going to be there for you no matter what you do. One wrong step and you could lose everything. But we know you're diehard. We know you're diehard. We know we can talk about (laughs) social media forever. We are going to love mostly you. stick around. Stay with <laughs> us. We're going to talk about weird shit in a minute. I promise. You can see how all of this can just go into that idea of just groupthink. Groupthink. Group and can definitely add more into that. And you know who's especially susceptible to all of this? Seniors. No. Senior high school students. Yes. <laughs> Among teens, this has become sort of a place to go and figure out who you are, which is great, but when you consider the fact that a lot of this shit's going to be linked to their name forever, is terrifying. Someone's going to hack Tinder one day and it's not going to go well. No, not at all. But Livingstone, who's a scholar who's written about the importance of social media to teen life, says that teens are allowed to be visible to peers online. They can construct and experiment with various identities, and their pages and accounts should be understood, and I think you'll think this is interesting, as place markers rather than self-portraits. It's not a self-portrait. It's how you want to present yourself at that moment in time, and that's going to be so different than in three years when you're in college. Or in three years when you look back and go, God, I was a philosophy uh, major. I wore a beret unironically. Oh, oh, my God. I like my beret. But we were talking about anchor points. And so these aren't even serving as anchor points. They're like, hey, guys, what do you think of this? Yeah, I'm going to try this out today. Try this out tomorrow. It, so it's not even that level of constancy. It's just like a an experiment throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks i think is the technical term for it but so much of that is what this part of developing your identity in your adolescence is right but it's there forever like that bothers me it's like yeah you have the right to go experiment and figure it out or whatever 
But whenever people look Google you a hundred years from now or you know, ten years from now, it still comes up attached to your name and that's horrifying to me. I was a terrible teenager. Oh my god, I'm so glad that's not documented. And the important thing to note about teens and social media is that peer response is much more important than the actual veracity of the information they're communicating and how personally they feel about it. And so the self is actually embedded in peer group response rather than in the information they're projecting. It's embedded more with the audience than with the performance. But I don't think there's any big change than your pre-social media ideas. It's just that now it's so visible. You it's can, quantifiable. Yeah, you can study it. Yeah. Uh, it's something interesting I read the other day is this idea of, of things people do to get their likes, to get those views on YouTube. And, is it boobs? Well, that's, that can happen. But different. <laughs> and this going to tie it back into our original story of these tattooed ladies just completely appropriating the idea of being kidnapped by Indians and forcibly tattooed and using this to build up their created self, Mm -hmm. their image, their story. This really happened to somebody. This was really her story. And these other people that just got tattooed in New York completely just stole Co-opted. Yeah. Stole it. They kidnapped it. And there's just this great article on Vice about my kidnapping story. It was talking about how common it is on YouTube for all these vloggers to post my kidnapping story videos. How many vloggers have actually been kidnapped? Over 200,000, apparently. What? Are you kidding me? They need to stop vlogging. They're all getting kidnapped? This is ridiculous. Now, of course, there are videos of people telling their real stories of kidnapping, and that is brave and amazing, and it's part of their healing process. But that's what Olive did, too. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone saw how popular it was, and they decided to jump on board. And this is... So what has happened on YouTube? But what are they trying to do? They're not trying to like sell their tattoos at a freak show. Like what are they trying to achieve by posting kidnapping stories? Oh, well, just to build their YouTube audience. I wish you could see the look. <laughs> and not to make light of some of their stories because some of them are, are kind of, of, of odd incidents, you know, where they thought someone was following them or, you know, a van kind of slowed down as they were walking by. <laughs> But while they were tying their shoe because yeah. their mom wouldn't buy them Velcro. Um, but some are just like, oh, is this even real? I don't even know. And they've gotten a lot of you know negative feedback. But you can watch some of these videos. And, I mean, some of them are probably real. But most of them are like, I was running one day and there was this guy that was kind of running a little bit behind me and he followed me most of the time on the trail. On a trail. Yeah, or like... On a, on a trail, like a path that people are supposed to go down when they're running. Right, or one where it was. she was talking about when she was a kid and someone came to the door and knocked and asked if they could come help them find their dog outside. Which, I would not want my kid to go out there, but to say like, oh look, this is when I was almost kidnapped. It's a little bit of an exaggeration. And to make it even more just ridiculous sensationalized sensationalized you know they'll pose the thumbnails will be them like photoshopped like bound and gagged oh that's so wonder woman yeah yeah well, not in that way she didn't like it i don't think 
And the other idea that gets a lot of mention nowadays with kind of some of the more modern feminist movement is that idea of trauma, especially female trauma, being co-opted and used as entertainment. Oh, it's so true. Oh, that so happens. I mean, look, go back through the 18 seasons of Law & Order SVU and look at the victims on every episode. They're all beautiful. I mean, not all of them. I'm sure there are some not beautiful ones, but the the vast majority of them are just genuinely beautiful women. And it's so frustrating that this is entertainment. Well, it's an interesting idea that like these tags, like YouTube tags, it, it asks for you to conform to them. You want to do something so that when people click that hot tag that your video comes up. And you go viral. And you want to conform to it. So if someone does like the ice bucket challenge. You're going to uh, go do the ice bucket challenge. So a bunch of people will watch it. And you're going to do it more extreme than the last person. But when someone does my kidnapping story as a hashtag, you're asked to conform to that? That's really interesting. And I'm sure that a lot of it comes from like people watching and going, oh, this is such bullshit when they're watching half of them or whatever and being like, this thing happened to me once and it's way worse than that. A sort of personal bias and like your personal narrative again, like, oh, well, that thing happened to me that time and it really affected me or it scared. I, I bet a lot of these cases are times when people were genuinely worried or scared at least. And then it's valid. But you don't call it a kidnapping story. You call it that moment when I was a woman in public and somebody did something shitty to me. Yeah, and you know, maybe you should gain some traction from that. Maybe that should be the topic you're talking about. You know, people have these catcalling videos. In the videos, they'll be discussing being catcalled. They'll call it, I was almost kidnapped. It sensationalizes it. But you're doing it just to draw your attention. Are you is that part of your personal narrative that you were almost kidnapped? Or is it that you had this really common... Everyday sexism. Is that, that's the you. hashtag you use. And why aren't you promoting that? Everyday sexism is a fantastic Twitter account, actually. You should probably go follow them. But I don't know. It's just like, is this part of your narrative? Is this it that you were almost kidnapped? Are you just building it because... Social media says you should because you're getting those positive responses. You want to be in that in-group. You want to be that popular group. Well, I find it so interesting because the numbers within the last year do indicate that one in every four women is sexually assaulted. And so you have this you have this word kidnapping here that's used and you have people talking about abduction stories, which are much more uncommon than actual sexual assaults. And it's like if you want to draw attention to the epidemic of violence against women, there's probably a way to do that. Right, and people cite this as like kind of a crowdsourced safety campaign. You know, it's like network of girls, kind of looking out for other girls. And I'm going to kind of call bullshit, bullshit. on that. Because and this is no better than that stupid chain email you got from your aunt about not wearing overalls in public. If you want to look out for other girls, you should be talking about the real things. You should be talking about everyday harassment that can occur. Or telling 13-year-old girls not to talk to that guy who says he's 15 on Facebook that they don't know. Or you should be telling them, don't get in his car after you've been drinking when you're 14. or when, I mean, there are so many real, real bad decisions that people make that actually put them in harm's way. Okay, so what's interesting is you have people like performing as media, social media, uh-huh. where you don't have kind of the media standards. Right, and, yeah, they're, and they're journalistic create, standards. And they're creating this personal myth. Mm-hmm. They are reframing this mm-hmm. 
in a way that fits in with what will get them more likes, with what will get them in the end group. What do you think doing this, like calling it the time I was almost kidnapped, does to a person's personal myth? It's like, okay, so does it take people that have always had this kind of harassment story in the back of their head and it is part of their narrative and does it change it? Well, I don't know. You hear a lot of people talking about like people who are like domestic violence survivors or people who are rape survivors talking about like everything changed for me in that moment when I came to a point where I could name it, when I could claim it and say that it happened to me and own it. It became part of my story and it was a very powerful moment for me. But I don't know if like searching your mind for it and being like, was I almost kidnapped once? Oh, yeah, I was kind of followed that one time. Like, I don't know if that's the same thing. And I don't know if it introduces unnecessary trauma to move past because it's very hard to move on from harassment, from assault, from abduction. These are all very real things that happen to people. Research and experience shows that it is it's haunting. It's something you never fully exercise. So I think that the prospect of introducing trauma to our online narrative really creates the possibility of it leaking over into our real life true self and really affecting the way we see ourselves. And it's a very reflexive relationship. Damon Brown wrote a book called A Virtual Shadow, and he talks about the idea that we're each focused on what I call our virtual shadow, a collective narrative that, like a physical shadow, is symbolic of where our real selves have been, albeit a few steps behind. So if you create this sort of trauma narrative for yourself, it's something that could affect you and affect your memories and affect yourself, leap out of your imagination into your cognitive processes and your active memory. And I think that there is an idea about written language, about these artifacts that are written down, that is very, very old, ancient, dare I say, that speaks now and bears looking at. So this is from the dialogue Phaedrus. You know, Phaedrus, writing shares a strange feature with painting. The offsprings of painting stand there as if they are alive. But if anyone asks them anything... They will remain most solemnly silent. The same is true of written words. And when a written document is faulted or attacked unfairly, it always needs a father's support. Alone, it can neither defend itself nor come to its own support. Socrates is speaking very specifically about written language, which is funny in and of itself. But now we're leaving these artifacts and we're putting them out into the world and they have to stand alone. And the idea that we're abandoning the artifacts is sort of void. We're no longer leaving them out in the world without an author, without an owner. But the question has become, how are they reflecting back on us? How are they affecting our self-concept, our mental image, our memory? And with something like this sensationalized trauma existing out in the world attached to our name, we're likely to receive comments and questions and be asked to put ourselves back in that situation and think about it and examine it in a way that changes its prominence in our own personal narrative and in our identity. It may become a much more pivotal moment. We may have to work through the after effects of having gone through that experience in a way that we never would have had we not introduced it as an integral part of ourselves to a public audience. 
So more than abandoning them and making them stand on their own, we have to think of our words as having almost a forecasting ability, almost a a forward motion, having the shadow of the future about them, where it's like, if you put that out there, this is something you may have to deal with. It may come back to haunt you. I think the idea of words as orphans is pleasant compared to that. They're not only out there, but you're accountable for them. Not only do they have to defend themselves or hold their own weight, but they have potential consequences for you and who you believe yourself to be that they really haven't in the past. Because we can read classical text, we can read old letters, and we can have our critiques and our opinions. But like we said, we can't send Erickson a strongly worded letter because he's dead. But because of the real-time interface afforded by social media, we are accountable. If we want to retain our identity, we retain our ownership and authorship of everything we put out. We're still the word's father. And I guess the question is, are we the words? Is that who we are? What we choose to present? I mean, it's an interesting philosophical idea. It's like, you may feel a certain way, but you're also choosing to present this So what's the real you? Young would say that it's only the parts of it that we choose to internalize that actually matter because we're divorced from the outside world. But Young didn't have Facebook. Oh my God, I would friend him. He posts all these annoying inspirational posters. With the black borders, I know, man, move on. Better than Freud. Better than Freud. Just cigars all the time. Just all the, the weirdest shit. All the fucking time. Just cigar after cigar after cigar. I'm like, dude, it's just a cigar. So this question of artifacts and are we our words? Are we connected to what we say online? You have to look at these extreme cases of people who purport to be something entirely different from what they are offline. Right, you have that idea that we talked about of of body lore, of taking the self, taking one's inner self, and projecting it out outwardly through how we present the body, whether that be tattooing, or clothing, or piercing, or other body modifications. But nowadays, we're allowed to have a personality and a self that is not corporal. Right, our minds, like the the hyper-personal mind that was imagined on social media is kind of a loaded idea because it is a self that is completely divorced of your body. And people at this juncture, until we are all dating operating systems like in her, are going to be expecting that your body is representative of you. Yeah, and it begs that question, you know, what is your true self? And it brings us to just an interesting story to wrap the show up with. And that is one that's very recent of Manti Teo. Sports. We're going to do a sports story, guys. Sports. Go sports. We actually used to be really into college football when we were in college, but anyway. So he was just one of the top players in college sports. He was a linebacker from... Oahu. Um, He was Hawaiian Samoan descent. He was a Mormon. He eventually committed to Notre Dame. Notre Dame? The fighting Irish? Yeah, we saw LSU beat up on Notre Dame. Long time ago? Long time ago we did (laughs) see Not that long ago. He was an amazing player, extremely intelligent guy. He was sports All-American, football All-American. He was also an academic All-American. He was a huge college football star. 
He, he was a golden god. He was. He stayed for his final year. He wanted to win a national championship. And he did not go on his Mormon mission, which tisk tisk manti teo. Latter-day Saints did not look too favorably on that. But he, he did. He stayed at Notre Dame with a Catholic school and played football for his senior year. There started to be this mythology developed around him. Which, how could there not be? Right. I mean, sports is just rife. Rife for that. Especially Notre Dame. Oh, Rudy, Rudy, and win one for the Gipper. But he also would frequently talk about his personal relationships through the media. And he had a very strong family ties to his Hawaiian Samoan family. There was also stories about his faith, also his personal relationships with his girlfriend. Lene. Yeah, and he had this great, wonderful girlfriend he would always talk about. On September 15th of his senior year, Notre Dame upset Michigan State, and on national TV, a sideline reporter asked him how he managed to play such inspired football. 12 tackles. He was a linebacker. Given that he was just a few days removed from a six-hour period where he lost his grandmother and he lost his girlfriend, Lene, who died of leukemia. Oh, God. And he says, they were with me. I'm just so happy that I had a chance to honor my grandmother and my girlfriend and my family. What an amazing guy. I mean, he really is. Like, he's just so shiny and pretty and happy and all the footballs. A week later, they beat Michigan. Michigan. They're rivals. The Wolverines. He actually skipped his girlfriend's funeral to play at this game. He told the media that all she wanted was some white roses. So I sent her roses and sent her two interceptions along with that. And he went on to play in the national championship game. He was a finalist for the Heisman. I mean, this guy was going top pick in the NFL draft. But then... What happened? On January 16th in 2013, Deadspin. Oh, those guys. The the TMZ of ESPN. (laughs) That's so many letters. It's it's true, though. Deadspin? Yes. Deadspin says... Well, they released an article saying, Manti Teo's dead girlfriend, the most heartbreaking and inspirational story of the college football season... Is really sad. Is a hoax. No! What do you mean a hoax? So they received an anonymous email from Hawaii saying, I know you guys get thousands of tips that are out there crazy. This is one that should be really looked into. While Manti Teo is a loved native son here in Hawaii, he is also a fraud. The story about his girlfriend dying is completely made up. The story floating around the island is that Manti was duped by a man online pretending to be his this girl, Lene Kakua. Once Manti found out he'd been tricked, he made up the story that she died in order to ensure that no one asked questions, and he never looked foolish. Now, this is interesting because there are news articles talking about how he had interacted with her. In the South Bend Tribune, they have an interview with Teo talking about the moment young love first bloomed, November 28th of 2009, after a tough road loss at Stanford. He saw Kakua saying their stares got pleasantly tangled. Then Manti Teo extended his hand to the stranger with a warm smile and soulful eyes. I don't think that part's made up. I bet he did have soulful eyes. Still does. He's alive. Interesting. 
as the reporters started digging into this, they could find nothing about Kakua. No digital footprint. Only things that existed in stories about Mantar. And only that one thumbnail avatar photo that appeared in all the news stories. That's not looking real good. So, how did they meet if she didn't exist? Well, that's a great question. Because... Um... Those reports of him meeting her were all from his dad. Oh, yes. Okay. They were secondhand stories. They were things he told his dad that his dad told, told the media. Is that bet as a very traditional, good Samoan Hawaiian with Mormon roots and a strong patriarchal figure, one does not want to disappoint dad. And I bet that dad does not approve of having a girlfriend that you only talk to online that you've never met in real life. Right. And Manti had talked on the phone with her, uh huh, with his girlfriend, mm-hmm. but they'd never actually met in person. They had one meeting that was canceled by her mm-hmm. and one that was actually canceled by him. Lucky break. Yeah. Because his family kind of called him home. God, you can just see the family allegiance like all over this. Very strong, very important part of that culture. On March 23rd in 2012, she contacted Manti to tell him that she was in a car wreck. Oh no. And then as luck has it, she was in another car accident. Right, but she didn't contact him that time. Right, the brother called to tell him. Because there was actually a pretty extensive network of sort of support staff for Lene. Right. There were family members that he talked to. And she talked to his family members as well. True. On June 2012, she contacted him to tell him that she was diagnosed with leukemia. So this is a long running thing then. This is not just abrupt in the end of football season. She suddenly caught a bad case of leukemia by touching a doorknob and died. No, and that is not how you catch leukemia. (laughs) So you say. What do I know? And so on September 11th, his grandmother died. The next day. And that really happened. That really happened. And the next day, he got a call from her brother. Again. Saying that she was dead. That she had died of leukemia. Which, if you're faking this, asshole. Asshole. And interestingly enough, he started dating another girl in November of that year. And people related to his ex-girlfriend's. Started calling him, telling him what a terrible person she was. The new girl he was dating? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That girl's definitely a jerk in that she has a body and exists in the world. But, interesting turn of events. Tell me. On December 6th, he gets a call from... The brother. No. From his grandmother. No, she's really dead. Okay, I'm sorry. I missed that. Lene. Yes. From the girl... From beyond the grave. No. No, no. She faked her death. No one fakes their death. We're going to do an episode on that. To get away from drug smugglers or some bullshit. I think that is the technical term at this point. I think it is some bullshit. And finally, he kind of catches on. He's like, I'm thinking. He's a smart guy. He's an all-American academic football dude. Yeah. Apparently, he did not have too many concussions. And on Christmas Day, he went home and he kind of confided with his family that he thinks it might be fake. Like I said, that story comes out. After the national championship game, which they lost. To Alabama. And the article says that this was all a hoax. So they, the article posits that Teo's in on it. Yes. They kind of point towards that. But, like, 
He's such an innocent, sweet kid. Like, I think it wouldn't be that hard to trick him. Like, why did they cut straight to that? Like, what's their evidence that he knew that it was fake? Well, that he was starting to think that it wasn't real on December 6th when he got that phone call, but he still talked about her. Until January. Mm, until this kind of this article came out. They That's called covering your ass, dude. I mean, it kind of is what it was. And they say that this was all done by 22-year-old Renaya Tuasasopo, who is a Los Angeles native. And he created this fake virtual persona in 2008. Holy, 2008? Yes, this has been going on since 2009. Golly. He used this photo of one of his classmates, Diane O'Mara, who was not in on it. Oh, no, poor Diane. And created this entire fake persona. And from what we can tell, just in hindsight... Teo was not in on this. He was completely duped. And that's what he says happened. That someone had created an entire persona and they'd spoken for years and eventually fallen in love. Wait, 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 wait. Who called him? Who was he talking to on the phone? Like it was a guy doing it, but he talked to a girl on the phone? Yeah, he was just doing a voice. Shut up. Okay, so he had a fake voice. This guy had a fake voice and a fake picture and support staff. Or was he the brother? I assume he was the brother. Yeah, I think he did all the voices. He was apparently very talented. Pixar, get on that! I hate to cite Dr. Phil. Oh, God, are we going to cite Dr. Phil? They had an episode with an interview with him, and they had him like go behind a screen and do the voices. I mean, you could not tell the difference. Okay, so we're going to have to post that. He had recordings, I guess, like voicemails. He had voicemails, and they compared the voicemails with the male voice <laughs> behind the screen. Yeah, definitely. It's, it matched up. Do they have anybody analyze it? Yeah, they had FBI analysts. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that sounds legit. And so this guy had a picture and a voice, and he did this for years. Why? Because he was in love with him. Well, I'm a little in love with him, so I get it. But I'm not going to make a fake online personality why didn't he just approach him as a man? Well, because of the cultural issues with that. Right. So is he from a religious background as well? Yeah, of course. He was of a similar background as Teo. Okay. And I, okay, actually, I do remember reading this. He like is now playing music with his father in a church in Los Angeles. Right. He like, was at the time too. His father was like a pastor at a church. So is he like, is he trying to pray the gay away? I think so. It's really interesting. And a different a later interview, Teo says, you have someone you love die and you find out the person isn't real. That's all a big prank. You still go through the feelings of losing that person. The relationship to me was real. The illness, the accident, her dying, that was all real to me. So my feelings about them were real. So I mean, you have to wonder, it's like this person obviously created this fake identity. But how fake was it? What's the real person? Was it the person that he was projecting onto social media? Was it the person that was falling in love with Teo and that Teo was falling in love with? Or was it the person he was projecting when he was going to church? Well, this can be looked at as something that's just a cruel misrepresentation. Or it can be looked at as a way that a particularly creative person engineered to sort of circumvent cultural mores and taboo this is a way that someone found to express a part of their personality a part of their desire and their being that couldn't be supported by 
their real world circumstances. And you have to wonder if there is genuine emotional connection, if there's some kind of hyper-personal connection. Can that be faked? Can the affection be faked? Can the love and closeness and intimacy be farcical? Or is it just a disembodied love? I think it was that way. It was a disembodied self that he was presenting. It was most likely that he was presenting what he wanted to be. Not necessarily female, but free to love a man of his choosing. Right, and he kind of readily admits that he's most likely like gay. And well, he says he's trying to recover from it, oh, which wow. is so disgusting. Mm. Don't try to recover from being gay. Stop it. That's your pep talk for today. <laughs> you look at these ideas, these ideas we've talked about in this episode of projecting oneself, of the tattooed ladies that... Or we're projecting this identity and projecting this idea of this exoticism and danger and all this sexiness. And daring and, and adventure and, and... Liberation. Liberation, absolutely. And you look at the different ways we've used tattoos and other ways of body modification as presenting ourselves. And that is all come to a head with social media as we have started to define ourselves in that way. And we still use some of these as body lore, these ideas of self-presentation in social media and the photos that we choose to display, but also in the groups we choose to adhere to. Right. And even the forms of media that we associate ourselves with, the, the music we like and the movies we watch and all these things, like the culture we consume, that identifies us as well. And we're using all of those ideas to build this kind of amorphous mosaic of who we are. But we're not trying to tell the world what our body looks like. We assume that they can see that. We're trying to tell the world what's under that. It's deeper. It's more than skin deep. Tattoos are permanent. They're always on your body. But social media, social interaction, is trying to get people to move past that and see who we are inside. And so if you look at the Teo situation... Assuming that Tuesa Sopo has to use this elaborate scheme to express who he really is, is it dishonest? Question of what we present as ourself, is that just a story? I don't know. Is it just a story? Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts Society-13.com I like to listen